0: Hello, welcome to Changemakers. Today we are discussing the future of fashion and the retail space with regards to sustainability. We often ask the question can fashion ever be truly sustainable? According to BBC Futures, more of us now understand that the fashion industry accounts for about 10% of global carbon emissions and nearly 20% of wastewater. And while the environmental impact of flying is now well known, fashion uses more energy than both aviation and shipping combined. This is Changemakers, presented by Sustainably Influenced, a five-part mini-series focusing on the people and businesses making impactful changes in the sustainable fashion space today. I want to start off by taking a look at the history of fashion. Since the 18th century, the role fashion and textiles has played in society is huge. From illustrating social change, expressing identity, and even more recently, the impact our fashion choices can have on the environment. As many of you listening will know, the fashion and textile industry accounts for up to 10% of global carbon dioxide output. That's more than international flights and shipping combined, according to the United Nations Environment Programme. Bloomberg reports it also accounts for a fifth of 300 million tonnes of plastic produced globally each year. Wow. Companies are beginning to prioritise not only the sustainability of their product, but also the impact of their packaging on the environment, which with the rise of online shopping has become especially wasteful.
1: My name is Toyo and I'm the Sustainably Inference Research Assistant. This mini-series, we wanted to introduce a food for thought segment to provoke new ways of thinking and connect further with our audience. So we wanted to know, what was the most shocking piece of information you learned about the effects of the fashion industry on the climate that forced you to shift your perspective and take action in your own life?
0: So there are a few areas where we're seeing fashion and textiles making a difference. And when you think about this in simple terms of the idea of like a fabric being woven, it usually suggests that this is done by hand and by artisans around the world who dedicate their livelihoods, either through family tradition or culture, or it's kind of as a sole income. So much is involved in this process of creating a garment. And that's from the initial conception of design to production to distribution. And a huge factor of how a garment is made is how we utilize the waste produced. Today, I'm speaking to quite a few guests, and this has been a real eye-opener for me creating this mini-series. But first up is Arja Tukros, who is the Marketing and Communications Manager at Tomtex Co. In her role, she approaches marketing as an exercise in communicating the importance and value of the company's regenerative mission, she collaborates with her team to develop thoughtful and intriguing pieces that explore the possibilities of TomTex materials and philosophy that drives all parts of development and production. I spoke to Arja about innovations in the industry and how regeneration is key to existing in the fashion space. Where did the idea to create fabric from waste come from?
2: Yeah, it's such an interesting journey to get there. I would say it like kind of breaks into these three even parts of discovery that our founder, Uyen Tran, did throughout the beginning of her career. She really started in the you know fashion space, classic fashion houses. She went to Parsons and when she was working on her master's thesis, she kind of had this moment where she was realizing like she throws out so much coffee every day because she's a huge coffee addict and she throws out so many grounds every day. And she was thinking, you know, she looked at those grounds and was just really, I think there was a spark of curiosity where she was wondering, what can we do with this? Can this come back into the loop? Can this have a little bit more life before we get rid of it? Um, And I think that was also really underpinned by the second part of that discovery was that she worked in some of you know the top fashion houses in the States for a few years. And she, of course, got such a wonderful education in form and style and really seeing how all these people made such beautiful garments. But on the other hand, she was also seeing how they were throwing out materials that she would have liked given anything to own, you know, the most beautiful lace appliques, the most, you know, lovely chiffons, and they were just discarding them because they had a bottom line and they had stuff to do. And I think that was really when she was realizing how much this issue of waste applies to textiles. And I think in really searching through that story, those two things kind of fused together when she read this book called Cradle to Cradle. By Michael Braungart and William McDonough. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing their names correctly, but basically, you know, Cradle to Cradle really creates a really interesting thesis about how our modern production and manufacturing system is really based off of the idea of like we'll bring a product to life and eventually it will die. And in reading this book, she really found a lot of interesting ideas about how you know that's actually like a really human-driven idea. Waste didn't exist in nature before humans came around. There was no such thing as waste because everything was always recycled back. So she wanted to ask can we do that with clothing? Especially because for her, you know, she's a designer, she loves clothes, and she really believes that we can create textiles that, you know, fit form, fit function while also being sustainable. And so this is what really started that spark of her asking, you know, how can we do this with? materials that will biodegrade that will allow us to create a more circular world. So that's that's like the basis of how it began, very much a three-parter because I think it's a very holistic idea that ended up being an idea across, you know, multiple sectors across fashion. That's really interesting. We
0: speak about waste as if it's just a thing that happens, but it doesn't have to be. It can be designed out of the process. And I mean, in terms of like you guys and the the company that you're working for, like innovations in the textile industry are such a big talking point. Over the past few years, we've been hearing more and more about innovation. So I'd really be interested to know, how can you take it further to kind of compete with other developers out there and how they're using waste
2: in this way? On one hand, it's been really lovely to be in like a burgeoning market where there aren't other people doing what we're doing. And so there is a lot of space for collaboration and less competition. And that's really important to us because we do really believe in a regenerative future, in regenerative manufacturing. And what I mean by that is, is something that encourages circularity, something that will allow a product to participate in the earth in a non-toxic way. And I would say that the two ways that we're taking that further that we're really interested in developing is two parts. One, a commitment to regenerativity and two, a commitment to transparency. In terms of what I mean by regenerativity, we really emphasize green chemistry, water-based chemistry. I'm not a chemist, but our R&D team is amazing because they really have a philosophy that says, you know, with modern manufacturing, you start at the end, right? You say like, I want to make a shoe, And you say like, okay, how do I do that? What material could possibly fit into the form of a shoe? How are we going to push it together so it never falls apart? But instead of doing that, our team really asks, how can we let the materials guide us? What do the materials lean towards? We didn't start by asking, how do we make a leather alternative? We started with chitosan, the biopolymer that we use. It's the second most abundant biopolymer on earth. And they really asked, you know, what can this polymer do? What are the limits of it? What are the constraints and what are the possibilities that just haven't been explored because everybody's been starting at the end? So kind of allowing that time to really ask how this can be versatile has allowed us to make a product that is unseen on the market because this product can become the texture of suede or latex or faux leather. So there's just so many possibilities. And I think that that really comes from the space that we... Give to collaborate with nature. That's what we call it. It's a collaboration with nature. We're allowing the kind of sand to be part of our process. It's a part of our team almost. And that's really guided by the influences of green chemistry. Our team has gone to some of the best schools to learn about different types of synthetic biology, synthetic chemistry, green chemistry. And I just can't speak enough about how amazing they are. But on top of that, the other part of the process that's, of course, so important is people. The people who make clothes are some of the like most underpaid people in the world. Vast fashion, as you brought up, you know, we're making more than we've ever made before, and we're using it even less. And that often comes at the expense of workers. And we really believe, especially because... Two of our founders come from Vietnam, and they really came from a place where they learned, you know, you make the best of what you can, you use what you have to use, but you also treat your community with respect. We're really interested in creating a transparent process where we are only buying materials that come from the highest of standards. And that being said, we also want to follow things down the chain. So it's not just that we're buying Kytosan from responsible manufacturers who responsibly make kytosan, we also want to know where did you buy the shrimp waste that that kytosan came from? Who originally farmed that shrimp? And was it sustainable? Was it regenerative the way they farmed it? So it's really following that process all the way back. And also hopefully, you know, as we move forward, creating a more collaborative space with us and the farmers who are generating all of this shrimp waste, because we really do want to be in an ecosystem with them and not just kind of like the people who come in and buy all their stuff and leave. Um, so that's like, I think, the two my two-pronged answer to that question.
0: I have been so fascinated that everything Arja is saying. It really got me thinking about why more work hadn't been done before. There are so many byproducts from production that could be used for other things. Let's hear what she had to say on that
2: as I mentioned before, like within this really burgeoning market, like we are in such community with other people. There's very few people doing biomaterials, biotech, biomaterials very specifically. And there's so many contemporaries where it's been really great to lean on them and to be in collaboration with them, to meet with them and, you know, at different conferences and stuff really discuss our ideas. But I would say across the market itself, you know, We're really excited about the, you know, really fascinating challenge of starting in the luxury realm. We've really started with luxury. And it's because, you know, while luxury has been really vested in things that we're trying to upend, you know, we also really believe that we fit the market and that our vision of materials that are regenerative but also are high performance that have incredible form that are incredibly unique and aesthetically versatile that that is important in this market and that that appreciation for craft and form is something that people are really invested in and we've been really heartened to see how especially post pandemic consumers and even you know consumer businesses have become so much more responsive to ecological needs to being more thoughtful consumers and to really asking you know like how far can you push it how far can we as a business go to give them a product that is sustainable that is regenerative and that they feel good about you know that's why we're so excited to Present our materials on Peter Doe's New York Fashion Week um, catwalk. It was really exciting to work with him. That was for the spring summer runway. And it was just really exciting to see our materials, you know, used in the same way that all of these other really beautiful and exquisite materials are through a process that we did with Peter to create a specific material that would work well with his collection, but also be made in a way that would allow him to create a form, create the look. We were really happy with that. And it's a really great invitation kind of into this space. And we're really excited about more collaborations coming forward as well.
0: Are there any like really, really unsustainable fabrics or materials out there that you think, how can we replace that? How can we make something better that is a better replacement to those unsustainable kind of fabrics?
2: I could probably write like a master's thesis about each fabric and why it's like not very sustainable. And I think that what we're really interested in and why I keep bringing up like the idea of circularity is that this is like a systems level endeavor, right? Is that like, as much as we can look at very specific markets, we also understand that there are large global forces really underpinning a lot of what makes production so unsustainable. And so that's why we really want to emphasize circular production. We really want to emphasize this challenge, you know, of creating regenerativity and we really believe that that elevated to a wide scale to a large conversation like that is the challenge. That is the challenge of this decade of maybe the century as we go through all of this innovation and you know especially as we realize that like innovation isn't a constant. It doesn't always look the same. You know, the innovation that I thought of when I was a child is so different now. And we really believe that like innovation in the space of manufacturing is pushing it towards also more equity, more thoughtful creation. We believe that moving towards a more circular system also addresses issues of the legacy of systemic violence in our society and that business needs to be a part of that conversation. We firmly believe that that is also innovation as much as, you know, people want individual products. We believe that that's part of the conversation because of the different systems that we're using to create the product. Now, of course, the product itself, we're really pleased to see that you know it is innovative in that it's a totally new class of material. Its ability to mimic so many different types of textiles that we're already used to is really exciting because it does create a lot of versatility. It creates a lot of opportunity to also replace textiles that are really, really invested in plastic. One of the things we always say is, you know, no toxins, no petrochemicals, no plastic, no tanning. That's the four things that we are never going to do because those are the processes that we really want to upend in the textile space. Because at this point, we just believe that the returns that we're getting from any synthetics are no longer worth it it's not going to be sustainable for much longer anyway. And it's really important to move to a world that isn't so dependent on petrochemicals. And we believe that fabric, it's like, the, it's where we live. We live inside of fabric and it's the first place for this battleground to go. And we, of course, Uyen cares about that so much because she is a designer herself. And this is really how we want people to access it in part because we understand that we're a part of an ecosystem as well.
0: So thank you so much, Arja, for your insight. Next up, I want to understand more about what it means to run a sustainable fashion brand with everything that we've just listened to. I thought that that was a really key topic for us to then delve into. And with consumers now demanding more from brands, there have been a number of smaller like brands and businesses popping up online claiming to be quote unquote sustainable or ethical. When I speak to most founders, they always say the same thing. Before you start a brand, you need to ask yourself, what is your why? And are you actually making a brand that is inherently sustainable or are you greenwashing? Goni Chikwanagere is the founder of We Are Kin, a made-to-order sustainable fashion brand. After the Rana Plaza disaster, Goni really quickly realised that there is a dark side to the fashion industry. And that's partly why I wanted to hear more about her story. Let's get into it.
3: I have always been a fashion girl, like I love fashion. I'm so in love with what it is, what it makes you feel, all those different things. But I remember um, when the Rana Plaza disaster happened, that was a real tipping point for me to realise that this industry that I was so in love with and so enamoured with had a really dark side and, you know, there was a real cost of human lives and also the planet in what fashion represented. And then I decided to start We Are Kin because I just wasn't really seeing sustainable brands that would work for a woman like me. I've always been curvy, the waist is whatever, the bum is whatever. And then the sustainable options out there just weren't ones that would suit me. And it literally just felt like Jesus sandals and hemp. And so I decided to start something that was timeless, was, you know, size inclusive and all those things. These are words I use now. It was just, I want women of all sizes to be able to wear my clothes. Obviously now we call that size inclusivity and all these different things. And so that's how that came about really with We Are Kin and why I called it We Are Kin was because people I work with are kin, but also customers are kin.
0: One question I really, really wanted to ask Oni was how do you structure your business in a way that allows you to really look after your workers, especially as a smaller or self-funded business?
3: I think it's really important right at the beginning of your business or if you are already in business to kind of go back to the start and have your why. So I say this all the time, but my why is people and planet over profit. So I'm a business person, I need to make money. It's really important for me that... I'm not harming the people and the planet. And so you have to look at your wages, what you're going to pay people. Is that a living wage? Is that something that people can really thrive off and then work from there? So that is kind of how I personally see it. And also because my business is made to order, it makes it a lot easier because the money comes in, things are made. But if you're trying to fund a business yourself, then honestly, when it comes to fashion, nobody wants to give you money. Like I didn't even go that route. I just kind of took what I had, you know, lived at mum's had my studio at dad's for a bit and that's just kind of how I started because I couldn't afford studio space and I left London and went home so that I could do that and that in itself is a privilege but in terms of actually having let's say like you know 100,000 to start a brand did not have that I started with what I had and so on and so forth and each year the business grows and more money comes in and that goes right back into the business and grows that so that's how I do it but when it comes to funding you've got to I don't know There are lots of ways to get funding and loans and all these different things. But I feel like if you start small, that is very sustainable, actually. And then you grow at a rate that is, again, sustainable. We did a greenwashing panel together. And
0: I know you had a lot to say on the panel. All rightly so. And I think in terms of being a small brand and positioning yourself within the sustainable fashion market, how easy or difficult is it to avoid greenwashing when it is everywhere and in the mass market?
3: The problem with greenwashing is that it is insidious so there are times where actually I'll write something and I'll give it to a friend to read because I know I'm saying it from a pure heart but when you're used to having these phrases used by unco-opted by brands who aren't doing the work you can also come across as though you're greenwashing when you're not and it's also easy to slip into these things but you really have to, as a consumer, as a brand, whatever you're doing, really be aware of what you're saying and doing. Because I remember years ago when like this vegan leather first came out and I was like, this is, this is plastic. This is not um, vegan leather. Pineatex, pineapple leather, that's vegan leather. But now it's like everyone and their mother is using this phrase and it's like, no, this is actually really bad for the planet. This is polyurethane this is oil (laughs) what are we doing when it comes to certain phrases like you know conscious collections like you just said they evoke something in you and businesses want to do this and that's why you have to do your research before you buy anything from anyone as a growing business Mm -hmm.
0: how will you be able to maintain your ethics and your position within the sustainability space but start to grow at scale
3: Again, I think this is why it's really important to have a strong DNA and foundation. And also I am someone who has said a lot of things <laughs> publicly, <laughs> so I can never walk back those things. But also I'm someone who has a lot of integrity and it's important to me that I am consistent in everything that I do. So when it comes to sustainability for me, it's not just in fashion, it's in everything I do in my life. And I really do my best and I'm open about my failings and like my wins and all those kinds of things. And it's like your allotment. Exactly. I got my allotment <laughs> and, you know, all those different things. And so for me, it is a part of who I am. I don't have scares of like, oh, if I do this, this will happen. Because I have turned down a lot of money and certain things already, because I just know that it's not going to be viable. Like when a big brand tells you we want to buy, you know, 20,000 units of XYZ, but it's sale or return or the sizes aren't going to be size included. Or Like I I honestly say no to so much because it's important for me to keep my integrity and we've all seen it where we love a brand that's sustainable or is doing really well. And then big money comes in and things suddenly change and it's really devastating. And I would never want to do that to others. So that's like a real me personal conviction. I'm very like a convicted person. I can't really say the same for other brands. You have got to know what you want and how you want it and be patient with certain things and say no more than you say yes. I feel
0: that everything that Ghani is saying is so insightful and really refreshing in this industry. And she chooses to use deadstock fabric in her designs. And this means using surplus materials from textile mill productions and garment factories. It can exist for various reasons. So, for example, possible over-ordering, accidentally dyed, like, the wrong colour, or if there are any other imperfections. So I want us to understand a little bit more about why she chooses to use deadstock.
3: I think for certain things, it all... Will... <sighs> There is so much dead stock out there already that even if we all started using it now, we'd we'll be here for you know many decades. But also, there are a lot of like material innovations that I would like to get input into the industry and like put in customers' hands and things like that. But again, some of these new innovations We've not been vetted. We don't know what their carbon footprint is or their impact on the planet is either, even though they are supposedly eco-friendly. So it's just a growth by growth. It's why it's important to grow sustainably because everything that we bring into the business, we've vetted, we've worked on it, and then it's the next one. And slowly, slowly, that's really important to me to grow slowly, but be here for a long time as opposed to fast growth and then business burnout or messing up and having a scandal. (laughs) Do you have any advice on how individuals can support
0: and champion local textile communities? So in rural areas or in developing countries, where it can be harder to reach the global market? Do you have any advice for those
3: communities there? I'm very big on supporting local so I actually live in Northampton. and whenever uh, this is not you know textile related but if I go to like our little local cheesemonger if I'm doing like a cheese board I won't go to like a big supermarket I'll go to the cheesemonger probably buy a little bit less because it's a little bit pricier but when you support local and shop local it makes a difference to your immediate life like my local high street I'm very big about not the you know first fashion stores but you know the independent jewel and so if someone wants to get me something go here go there and it just it makes such a big impact and these businesses need to survive in rural areas I think now post well I mean we're still in COVID-19 but nineteen. I think we all kind of have an appreciation for what we have around us and we are a lot more proud of heritage and so if you're somewhere let's say you're in Rajasthan or you know in Kenya or even in Zimbabwe or South Africa where there are these really cool textiles I think we're in a place now where you wear something like that and you say I got it from here it's actually a clout thing as well I think it's really impressive it's really cool and I think especially with Gen Z is that who's younger than us they have their finger on the pulse and I think it yeah like shopping small shopping local wherever you are in the world is so important and it makes a massive difference and it's just great to see the joy on someone's face when you're supporting their like small business or big but you know sustainable business or whatever it may be.
0: Goni thanks so much for joining me. Finally I really believe that we can't speak about fashion without discussing retail. The landscape of retail has changed so much over the past 20 years especially with regards to fashion The rise of internet shopping has seen a steep decline in the number of shoppers heading to their local high street, in favour of the ease of consuming via their mobile or laptop devices. The pandemic and multiple lockdowns saw more of us than ever shopping online. However, in December, just gone. There were a number of strikes, including Royal Mail and the railways, which sort of limited travel, but also delivery times. So I would personally be interested to see how many of us changed our shopping habits. Christmas 2022 sales figures and profits are yet to be released, but I think we will be in for a surprise this year for sure. My final guest on this episode is Anna Woods, and we'll be discussing the adaptability of retail in recent years. So, Anna has worked in the retail space for 25 years, from a Saturday sales assistant to boardroom to entrepreneur. Two years ago, she left her corporate life to use her experience to found Positive Retail, a men's and women's resale business. Currently with two stores and hoping for more in the future, Positive Retail has been voted one of 50 best independent shops in the UK by the Sunday Times style. Through deadstock and seller partnerships, they categorically change customer perceptions of retail, creating joy, protecting the planet and providing a much needed compelling solution to the retail industry's waste issue. Anna is also a fervent believer in humans and runs a leadership coaching business focusing on helping retail leaders think and lead with courage and compassion. So Anna, thank you so, so much for joining me. I want to talk a little about online shopping, retail, fashion, because I think that it's so important and so integral in that conversation. So I really want to know, online shopping has kind of been heralded as the death of the high street. And in your opinion, do you think it was solely due to the increase in online offerings that brought this decline? So
1: I started at Topshop 18 years ago as a buyer's admin assistant. And in those days... The internet was a girl called Tabitha who was literally on a desk in the corridor at Topshop, and every Friday we would go and we would take her our samples. Yeah, so the internet has grown so so much, but I don't think that it the internet is solely responsible for the death of the high street at all. I think it's a culmination of things. I think landlords have been really, really greedy. I think business rates being kind of valued on the way that the business rate system is valued. You know, it just made a lot of small businesses. And to be honest, when I was at LK Bennett in my last role, I remember that the store in King's Cross, like the business rates had gone up so much in one year. It was like any profit that you were making and that store was profitable. Any profit that you were making was just wiped out. And that was a large organization that had bigish pockets. And I think for smaller businesses, um, you just can't afford the rates, you know, especially in London if you're wanting to do something in London or bigger cities. So yes, of course, the internet changed the landscape of absolutely everything. And in terms of product offer as well, like, so when I was at Topshop at the beginning of my career, ASOS didn't exist. You know, Primark was this thing that was sort of, we ended up having to begin to, oh, will you go and check? There's that store down the road on Oxford Street that's just open called Primer. Will you put that on the uh, comp shop? And it's like, oh, right, okay. And then once that begins and it's a cheaper offer and then ASOS begins and it's fashionable and a cheaper offer. And then you've got the rise of Boohoo, all the e-tailers. Of course, that has an effect on the high street. But you have to think about, What was being offered as well on the high street, and all the shops were beginning to sort of look the same. I don't feel like there was any innovation, you know. And you've got everybody trying to sort of clamour for the same thing. Independence weren't really around, it was all the big chains. And now, if you look at Oxford Street, it's sort of not even British big chains anymore, it's European and it's Zara and it's. Mango, or it's Scandinavian, the British (laughs) history has really lost its way. And yeah, some of it's down to the competition from the internet, of course it is, but some of it's down to not changing or innovating.
0: One of the big differences that we're starting to see are smaller, sustainable brands really coming into that space. And I mean, I believe that sustainability in retail is a huge, it's a huge deal. And people need to adopt it, but it comes in many, many forms. Mm-hmm. There be things like collaborations, pop up, secondhand stores, all that kind of stuff. What else can like traditionally, quote unquote, unsustainable retailers do to embrace more sustainable fashion?
1: There's loads people can be doing. So, a huge part of Positive Retail's mission is to represent dead stock in a way that is. A compelling solution for it. So for a long time, so I know from my experience of working as a buying and design director that you are given a budget at the beginning of the season and generally it's like, here you go, we need to make 100 million sales, therefore go and spend X amount and you know that that figure and those sales figures, they're not really from demand, they're from the profit that the business wants to make and so what that does is you go away you cut up the numbers you do the buy but you fully know that only 15 to 20 percent will ever sell at full price then there's another big chunk probably about 60 percent that will sell with 25 percent off or more you know in the sale because that's what we've trained customers to expect all the time doesn't need to be black friday or a sale i mean resellers are so distressed on the high street there's there's constantly some format of promotion so and then there's a chunk at the end that you never sell so there is waste always and there is dead stop because the starting point is always wrong it's not from the true demand that customers will want it's from a profit figure basically so for me There's what I would like to see is people using positive retail to dispose of their dead stock. But when I say dispose, it's not about disposing of it. It's about representing it in a new light, you know, and there's something in the industry that's really disturbing about value. So when something comes in at the beginning of the season, say, I don't know, whatever, it's a coat it's worth 200 quid in August. By the end of December in the sales, you're trying to flog it for like 30 quid. How can a product that a team have worked really hard to create devalue itself so much and i I really want to work with people with their stock to show customers that there is a compelling solution to this and actually you can walk in a positive retail you can get three seasons old you can get one season old you can get ten seasons old or I've done the hard work for you the straw looks great it's all brands that kind of complement each other and it's curated and I think there's more people I know from being on the other side of this as a buyer that there's a lot of shame around dead stock so like we didn't do our job correctly as buyers because we're left over with stuff it's like this dirty secret people are holding on to at the end of the season and it's like Oh, let's just, you know, hush it over there and like job it off to TK Maxx or something. It's like all the value and beauty gets lost within a season or two. And I just think more collaboration is needed to help with waste, basically. And that's my mission.
0: It's really interesting that the theme of waste keeps coming up in every conversation that I've had on this episode Anna raised a really interesting point that there will always be waste because of how the model is drawn up. And responsibility is a huge topic of discussion. What does it mean to be a responsible retailer and employer? Who is responsible for initiating that change and that is so desperately needed in the traditional retail business model?
1: I think with retail as well, I remember like every season you have to go in and do an analysis of the season before and kind of plan your next season. And Every single season I would be tasked with, well, your margin's got to be 0.5 above last year. And it's like, honestly, I never understood it because I used to think, well, we're being told from Europe all the leather is going up. We're being told also that labour costs are going up. How can we expect to increase our margin every single year, every single season? In my humble opinion, what I think is you end up with a lesser product. You know, if you're tasking suppliers constantly, I need 0.5 on this, I need da-da-da. It's just, it's, it's unrealistic. And I think you do end up just, well, creating wasteful products as well. So, yeah, I would like brands to think about that. But it's hard, isn't it? Because the system is set up as it is.
0: Yeah, it's really difficult. Do you think it's possible for sustainable fashion to ever truly become accessible? in bricks and mortar from a supply chain and distribution perspective? I'd hope so. Otherwise, you
1: know, I would like to think, of course, surely there's got to be an end-to-end supply chain that is doing the right thing.
0: Do you think we'll see the likes of these smaller Mm. independent brands who are more sustainable? Yeah. Actually on the high street, not just in small towns or places where it's a little bit more affordable, yeah. I'm talking shopping hubs, I'm talking shopping yeah. centres, I'm thinking the Westfields, the Oxford streets, the ball rings of Oxford, yeah. UK. I would genuinely like
1: to think so because otherwise how does change actually happen but I think it might take stuff like government intervention and backing and people that want to scale. So if we think about you know, I would love to grow positive retail and see that nationwide, etc. What do I need to be able to do that? Well, you do need money, <laughs> you know, you do. And I know that if I continue with brand partnerships, grow those, you need a sensible investment from people in order to be in locations that are noisy the kind of you know big city centers
0: as well as smaller towns as well there are so many buzzwords flying around (laughs) that have almost like watered down what sustainable fashion really means and as a result and this is something that I've experienced in my career that a lot of the retailers are scared of being accused of greenwashing meaning they have been a lot slower to adopt like more sustainable practices how do you think as somebody who's come from a traditional retail space and now has your wonderful space, positive retail, where you're doing good and bringing in the dead stock and trying to take those unsustainable practices that make them more sustainable, how can these larger existing brands do that? And how do they manage that in a more efficient way? I mean, I think
1: a lot of it starts from like we were talking about before, like supply chain and really understand it because you know sustainability is a massive topic isn't it and it's like a really wide topic but i think on the whole retailers know that they need to be behaving in a more conscious way and actually that customers are now expecting them to yes it's a buzzword but it's one that truly people need to be showing that they are or like what way in what ways are they sustainable that they are actually thinking about things and they're thinking about where their products made the garment workers, what they're paid, living wages. And that actually this is about being responsible, being a responsible retailer that cares about the product, the people within their organization, the people that are making the product. Like how often do you go and visit your factories? Where are your factories? Who on earth are the people working in your factories? And also for me, I think there's also a piece within head offices as well about the well-being of people i know that retail has gone through a really torrid time and i think this isn't just about being sustainable in terms of oh let's present this image to the consumers and then that's it that's sort of our job done we're a good retailer like we're doing good things it's like also what are the practices within the organization as well as in the outer system of the organisation, if that makes sense. So what are you doing as a responsible employer? What kind of things are you providing for people? And are people happy, healthy, just as you care about the garment workers? And I, I'm saying this with sort of some of my coaching work hat on. I've worked with people recently that was so scared of the lead-up to Black Friday. But one in particular the year before had actually had to pull over on the most waste, she was having a panic attack. So the people here, we need to be thinking about how we're treating them as well and what the pressure of everything is doing to them. So are your sustainable practices just about creating an organic T-shirt or are they truly running through every line and strand within your organization. Like, are you embodying what you're saying you'll do? Because the two aren't separate. You know, you are one whole. We are one whole. Those garment workers touch us just as much as, you know, we touch each other within the head office. Like, we are one. Well, obviously, I see the future of sustainable fashion as positive retails on every high street, darling. No, I just think people becoming more au fait with shopping, the pre-loved, dead stock, the way that I'm presenting stuff to people, like that that feels like a new shopping experience and an exciting shopping experience. And I think there's so many people, especially like we're involved in the whip and you think about the people at that. There's a lot of people trying to move things forward. And I just think the way that retailers, it's it's like this old beast that just needs dragging into the future because there's still a lot of the system that clings on to the old. And I just think the more things can be exposed and the more, I guess the more people like me that use their old retailing experience to, to bring it into the future and that can shine a light on like the truth and, and practices that I have witnessed and, and that are truly willing to, to be honest about why they're doing what they're doing now. Um, I think that things will move forward, but it's energy. There's a lot of energy required for it.
0: So after that, all I can say is, Anna, thank you so much for a really eye-opening and enlightening chat. Now we're going to come into the final part of this episode. This mini series is a brand new format for me and something that I really want to do when speaking to my guests about what can sometimes be perceived as quite heavy topics is to bring in a little bit of light. So for every episode, I'll be asking what they think the future of sustainable fashion looks like for their sector. I'm a bit of an optimist and I would like to hope that eventually we can reach some form of ecotopia in my lifetime. So here's what my guest had to say on the matter. Arja.
2: I think that definitely the answer is yes, that we believe that this is the way forward. We believe that this is moving towards an ecotopia, a better way of innovating, a future of sustainable fashion. But we believe that because we are also very heartened by the idea that this is not just one product. It's an idea and a philosophy that we carry with us through all of our making, really underpinning everything we do, you know, regenerativity, the idea of circularity. Um, it's so important to us because we believe that another really important part of all of these principles is that sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes innovation doesn't go the way that you need it to go. And with our current system, that usually means like, okay, bye, you're done. Like you've been chopped, you know, and that's not really what we want. We want uh, to be able to create a world where there is that investment in figuring out the best way to do all these things. So I think that it's really exciting for us, even though we're young, it's also just really heartening to see the way that other people really believe in this as not just kind of like a high flung, like utopian idea, but as something that's really necessary moving forward and something that also will be guided by people who really care and in part who have seen, you know, the serious negative effects of our current system on you know their home their habitat their community etc so we're really excited for this and we really do believe that a regenerative future is the way to go connie so i have two thoughts my first thought is we
3: are going to end up with a planet on fire (laughs) trying to survive mad Max style if we do not change consumption in all areas but especially in fashion because we are literally killing each other with how we are shopping The idealistic optimist in me, you know, sees us getting legislation globally about garment workers' rights, what fabrics. Because there are fabrics that companies are still, by the way, making pieces with fabric that is laced in lead or has compounds known to cause cancer. And people are still shopping and that really freaks me out. So I talk about this a lot. I really want legislation. I really do I think that would really massively push it I want you know businesses to be incentivized to do better I would love nothing more for me to say guys there's no longer a need for my brand because now all these businesses who are massive and have all the scale they're supporting their workers they're using the right fabrics and you know they're doing it in a way that really works for us all you don't actually need rearking I would honestly ego aside be really happy to be in that kind of position because I can spend my days walking my dog and eating ice cream or something.
1: Well, obviously, I see the future of sustainable fashion as positive retails on every high street, darling. No, I just think people becoming more au fait with shopping, the pre-loved, dead stock, the way that I'm presenting stuff to people, like that that feels like a new shopping experience and an exciting shopping experience. And I think there's so many people, especially like we're involved in the whip and you think about the people at that. There's a lot of people trying to move things forward. And I just think the way that retailers, it's it's like this old beast that just needs dragging into the future because there's still a lot of the system that clings on to the old. And I just think the more things can be exposed and the more, I guess the more people like me that use their old retailing experience to, to bring it into the future and that can shine a light on like the truth and, and practices that I have witnessed and, and that are truly willing to, to be honest about why they're doing what they're doing now. Um, I think that things will move forward, but it's energy. There's a lot of energy required for it.
0: So thank you all so much for taking the time to share your points of view. It's so interesting to see that even in the midst of all the optimism, we all share common, more realistic viewpoints on what the future of sustainable fashion really looks like. In next week's episode, we'll be talking about sustainable fashion and tech. Until then, you can subscribe and listen back to previous episodes of Sustainably Influenced on all good podcast platforms. You can follow at Sustainably Influenced on Instagram and TikTok. I'm Bianca Foley. Thank you for listening. This season of Changemakers, brought to you by Sustainably Influenced, has been produced by Content Is Queen, sound editor Amber Miller, and our research assistant is Toyo Douglas presented by Bianca Foley.